0: Thank you for checking out the Messages of New Grace. We are a group of believers in Roanoke, Virginia who are dedicated to loving God, loving others, and serving others. We hope that today's message is a blessing to you and your family. Go ahead and get your Bibles open to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 9. The book of Isaiah, chapter number 9. Again, this morning... We are beginning the season of Advent, and we've been celebrating Advent here uh, at New Grace for several years now, and Advent is the, the season right after Thanksgiving. It begins the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and it goes until Christmas Eve. And Advent, the word Advent literally means waiting. And we, as Christians today, we are in between two realities. We are looking back Towards the truth that Jesus did come, that God sent His Son as a Messiah to die on the cross, to shed his blood for our sins, to be buried and rise three days later, and then send to the Father. And we know that did happen, but we're waiting for His return. We're waiting for him to come back and receive his bride, as he said. And so for for us, Christmas is not just looking back to the baby born in the manger, but it's looking forward to the king returning to set up his earthly kingdom. And so we're between these two things, and Advent really helps us focus on that, really focus on not just the baby, but focus on the coming king one day. Now this year, I believe we can all agree, has been a little crazy. Uh, I am shocked that we are already at Advent. Just a little bit, yeah. I'm shocked we're already at Christmas. Um, in you know five weeks, I'll be starting a new New Year's sermon series. You remember last year's sermon series? 2020 Vision? Man, we had plans. And God just laughed at us and said, your plans are, are pitiful, and your plans require my will, and it wasn't his will. So this year, uh, our, our New Year's sermon is going to be, Ugh. so <laughs> hope for the best. And so, but that's what Advent is all about, and this year's really, really gone by fast. Um, now this week, we're going to begin the season of Advent by looking at the promises of hope that God gives us in the Bible. Now, when we look at these scriptures, not just this week, but really the rest of the Advent season, I want us to give the Old Testament saints and the first century Jews, let's give them a break. How many of y'all have ever, when reading the scriptures, or you're reading the New Testament where the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And you're like, how can you be so stupid? There's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that tell you, who, you know, where he's going to come from, what he's going to do, what town he's going to be born in. I mean, you could have figured it out. Have y'all ever thought that? I've thought that. I've looked at it, like, y'all are so stupid. You had everything that you needed to find out when he was going to come, where he was going to come from, what he was going to look like. You know, how, how his ministry was going to be. And you couldn't figure it out. But they didn't. We have to understand that they didn't see we have the privilege of living on the other side of the death burial resurrection and ascension we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit living inside of us illuminating the scriptures to us and if we're not careful we can look at the first century Jews we can look at the Old Testament Saints and think man they were complete idiots In the Old Testament, there are over 55 prophecies about Jesus' birth. How could they have missed all of them? How could they have missed all the promises of the Messiah? How could they have missed that Jesus was the fulfillment of those promises? But again, we're saying that as someone on the other side looking back. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the whole story. We have the whole scripture. See, one thing we got to understand when we're reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but even the New Testament, they didn't have the whole Bible. They didn't have it. In the Old Testament, only the the Levites had the Word of God, and not every one of them had all of it. No one had a complete copy. In the New Testament, they were living it as it was being written, so they didn't have the New Testament. So here we are, on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of the ascension, with the Holy Spirit living inside of us and indwelling us, giving us the what we need to see in Scripture. With the incomplete Word of God, and sometimes we struggle seeing what God meant meant. So how could we expect them to do it without the Holy Spirit, without the whole Bible, without everything that we had the benefit of? So let's give the Jews a break. They weren't as dumb as we think they were. They just didn't have all the benefits that we have. See, they wouldn't see the passages that we see. They wouldn't have seen them the way we see them because they didn't have the Holy Spirit with them. They didn't have the Holy Spirit doing the work of illumination. They didn't have the Holy Spirit opening their eyes to everything so it made sense to them. They didn't even have the scriptures. I mean, as we read, you know, you go through the Bible, we're about to begin again. January 1st is coming quickly. And we're finishing up our New Testament through the year Bible study. Bible reading schedule on our YouTube, you version Bible reading app as a church. We're going to begin the new, the Old Testament through a year coming on January 1st. Now, as we're reading the, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we're reading all this stuff and we see these, especially in Genesis, you see all these promises that God makes that are clear to us. He's making it Adam and Eve. He's making it Abraham. He's making all these people. We think, how could they not have seen that? But we have to remember the events in Genesis were not written down until Moses came on the scene. From the fall of Adam and Eve till Moses began actually writing the Bible is 2,500 years. So for 2,500 years, these people were living the Bible. Yes, they were hearing from God, but they had no written record of it. It was word of mouth. And until Moses came and started pinning what God wanted him to say, they didn't have a, a written record of what happened. So we do. We're blessed that way. But let's, let's cut them some slack. It's like watching a movie. How many of y'all have ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? If you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it. It's like 20 years old. You've had your time. The Sixth Sense, Mel Gibson is a psychologist. or guy, He's something. Not Mel Gibson. Bruce Willis. Um, Bruce Willis, one of my favorite actors I've been watching a lot of his movies lately but he's, he's, a, he's a psychiatrist, psychologist he's working with kids and he's talking to this kid who sees dead people and he's, he's talking about how he sees dead people and the whole thing goes through and at the end of the movie you find out he, you know, Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time He's been dead. And once you see that, it makes sense about everything that happened in the movie. Oh, that's why his wife never really looked him in the eye and talked to him. That's why they were so, you know, distant from each other. That's why these things happened, because he was dead the whole time. You see it at the end, but you didn't get it at the beginning. You watch it a second, a third, a fourth time. It all makes sense to you. You see all these clues. You're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. But you didn't see that the first time through. That's what we're dealing with. We have the whole story. We have the director's commentary with the Holy Spirit telling us everything he meant. So we see what God was saying in these scriptures when the Old Testament saints and the first century Jews did not They would have known that God had made promises to them, but they wouldn't have been able to put it all together like we can. We see in scripture that God said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But they wouldn't have put that together. That's why in the story of the birth of Christ, the magi, the wise men, they saw the star. They had studied Scripture enough and enough Scripture to know what the star meant, but they didn't have enough Scripture to know where he'd be born. So they came to Herod, and Herod had to go to some of the other Jews, and they said, well, you know, the Scriptures say in Bethlehem, and so that's why they had to go there. They didn't have the whole story. They needed the the resurrection. They needed the ascension. They needed the Holy Spirit to do the work of illumination and show them what they missed. They needed what we have. So let's not be hard on them. Put yourself in their place. You're a first-century Jew. How would you view Christianity as a first century Jew who is steeped in the Torah? Who is raised in the, the Old Testament and the the thing and the law of God, you've got this pound in your head, and Jesus shows up, and you don't have the Holy Spirit calling you. You don't have the Holy Spirit illuminating Scripture to you. How would you have reacted Christ to Christ when you did All right? Ben, can you give me this? Is it on? All right. Technology. Don't you hate it? All, All right. right. So, how would you have reacted as a first century Jew when that came up? Today, I want to show us some, some promises that God gave us in the Old Testament and show why they matter to us today. Now, humanity begins when God created Adam and Eve. Unless you leave the gap theory. But it begins when he created Adam and Eve and he breathed life into Adam and he created Eve in the Garden of Eden and he places him in the Garden and the Garden of Eden was a perfect place of fellowship with God. There was no, no war, there was no hate, there was no pain, there was no, no, no disease, there was no sickness, there was no bad weather. There were, it was a perfect environment, but really what made it perfect was man was in perfect fellowship with God. God tells Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and fill it now you're like well what's that mean well the garden's perfect what God had given Adam and Eve the job of doing was to make the rest of the earth just like the garden so what was the rest of the earth like I don't know but it wasn't like the garden I don't know what it was like but God says I want you to go out and make everything else just like this go make it perfect Go, go make everything like it's supposed to do. It was, it was a command to make the rest of the world look like Eden, to put everything in an orderly, tame, uh, chaos, and bring chaos, to, to tame the chaos with order. Now, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, we, we see how the world was supposed to be. Adam and Eve are in fellowship with God. Everything's perfect. The garden's beautiful. There's peace between man and beast, and everything's awesome. And God just says, hey, here's the garden for you. I want you to go out and make the rest of the world like this, and they are in beautiful fellowship with God. And then in Genesis 2.25, we, we have a beautiful verse, and it is my favorite verse in Scripture. April thinks my favorite verse is Proverbs 5.18-19. It's not. This is my favorite verse. It says that while Adam and Eve were in the garden that they were naked and unashamed. And I love that verse because it has nothing to do with clothing. Has nothing to do with what they were wearing. Has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, after the fall, they're trying to put on fig leaves and God Is They have no idea that they're naked. It doesn't even, doesn't even register in their mind. They had a relationship with God and a relationship with each other where they had nothing to hide. They were completely open. There was no fear. There was no desire to escape. They were completely open with God and completely open with each other. And that is something that since the fall, we have all longed for. Because we want it, but we've never had it. We've, we've never felt naked and ashamed because we know we're naked and we want clothes. We want to hide from each other. We want to keep stuff back because we're afraid if you see me as I truly am, you're going to reject me. If you see me as I truly am, then you're not going to like me because I'm a terrible person and I know what's wrong with me, and so we hide from each other. We try to hide from God, which is stupid. I mean, you can't hide from God, but we do it. You know, God, if, if God really knows me, then God won't love me. If God really knows me, then God will reject me. I mean, Adam and Eve thought that. That's why as soon as they sin, the first thing they notice is they're naked. Again, nothing to do with clothes. They become ashamed. They cover themselves. They hide from God. They're hiding from each other. And they're hiding from God. And then God comes and is like, where are you? God knew where they were. God wasn't playing hide and seek. He knew what had happened. But they try to hide themselves from God. See, we don't want people to fully know us because if they fully knew us, then they would reject us. So that causes us to protect ourselves. To show you what I think you want to see. I don't want to show you the real thing. I don't want to show you what I'm really like, because if you see what I'm really like, you're not going to like it. So I'm going to show you what I think you want to see. I'm going to show you what I think will make you happy, because if I show you too much, I'm going to get hurt. And so we, we end up moving away from what we were designed for. You know, no one in this room has ever felt like Adam and Eve did, completely open, completely exposed and fine with it and happy to be that way we've always felt naked and ashamed and we end up clothing ourselves so we don't feel that way right after genesis 225 they're they're naked and unashamed they're completely open genesis 3 sin enters the world and it breaks everything They were naked and unashamed, walking with God in fellowship. It is perfect. It is peaceful. It is beautiful. And then sin enters the world and destroys everything, changes everything. It breaks their relationship with God. They immediately run and hide from him. It breaks their relationship with each other. We know the story. God says, Adam, where are you? Oh, I was hiding because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? You know, God's like, what happened? The woman you gave me gave me fruit. I ate it. Now now all this has happened. The woman did it. Not me, God. It's the woman's fault. And, you know, this shows how fast sin breaks relationships. At the end of Genesis 2, Adam writes this beautiful poem about Eve. I mean, he just got done naming all the animals, and he's like, not like me, not like me, not like me, not like me. Whoa! She's like me. He said, I'm going to call her woman, because she is part of me, because she is mine, because she is a precious gift God has given me. We end chapter 2 saying that. Chapter 3, her fault, God. If you'd have given me a better woman, none of this would have happened. And here's interesting. You know, the New Testament never blames Eve. They laid the blame right where it belongs, at Adam. He was supposed to protect the garden. He was supposed to keep the serpent out. He didn't. He was there with her. He allowed it to happen. So he's like, God, it's her fault. And God's like, no, it's your fault. You made the choice. You let it happen. So we have this beautiful poetic moment and where Adam is praising Eve, loving Eve, and now he's blaming Eve. That's how fast it goes from perfect openness and peace to self-justification and blame. In a minute, everything was different. Sin enters a world... And it breaks everything. And in Genesis 3, God begins to address it. He begins to tell Adam and Eve how he's going to fix it. He starts by telling the man what's going to happen. You're going to have to work and you're going to have to work on the ground, and you're going to earn a living by the sweat of your brow, and life's going to be hard now, and the ground's going to bring forth thorns and thistles and weeds, and it's not going to be easy like it was supposed to be. He starts telling a woman what's going to happen. Now you're going to have pain and childbirth, so ladies, blame her. It's her, you know, hey, that's, that's what happens. And he goes, now you're going to be subject to your husband. You know, that's why You know, in the beginning, you know, we, we, a lot of preachers, especially Baptists, like, talk about, you know, submission, Wives, you submit to your husband, bless God. Does the Bible say that? Well, yeah, but it also says husbands submit to your wives. So, but the reason there's so much turmoil sometimes is because when God created Adam and Eve, she was his helpmeet. That did not mean she made the bed and washed the dishes. That means she was his partner in ruling the world, in making the world like, like Eden. They were equals. And now God says, you're not equal anymore. Now you're going to be subject to him. Again, don't blame me. God said it. But that's why there's so much strife sometimes. Because that's not what we were created for. But that's what God has made us. Now he starts telling a woman what's going to happen. And he starts saying how he's going to fix the world. And in in him telling them how sin broke the world and how he's going to fix it, we get the first promise of the Messiah. Genesis 3, chapter 15. God says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, this is the first promise of the Messiah, and we see how it plays out. We see what God meant. But Adam and Eve may not have understood that at the time. Again, put yourself in their position. All you've known for all of time is perfect peace with God, perfect openness with God, perfect openness with your spouse, and now it's gone. Your relationship with God's broken. Your relationship with your wife is broken. The world is broken. And God gives you this promise. God tells you this. See, they just lost everything, and they're being reprimanded by God. They're, God is passing judgment on them because they're the ones that broke it. It's not like it just happened to be broken. They, everything's broken, and they did it. It's their fault. So God is passing judgment on them, and they're, they're feeling all this, and in the middle of God saying, you've broken everything. But there's coming a day... But I'm gonna fix it all. I'm gonna put enmity between the serpent, which was Satan, and the offspring of woman. And one day, one born of woman will come and crush your head, Satan, and you're gonna bruise his heel. To put that in context, say we get into a fight, me and you. This is never gonna happen, because I'm not a fighter. But even if I was a fighter, we get in a fight, and I roundhouse kick you to the head. Again, never going to happen because I can't do that. I, I mean, I don't even get my leg up that high, but I roundhouse kick you to the head. You crack your skull, and the next day I've got to ice my foot because I bruised my heel. Who won that fight? I won that fight. You've got a crushed skull. I've got a boo-boo on my foot. I won. So there's no doubt here who's going to win this battle between Satan and the the Messiah that God is promising. So in the middle of this loss, God says, I'm going to crush this. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to fix everything. And we're given that what we're given is one day there's going to come one born of woman that's going to crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, We see what it means now because, again, we're on the other side of the resurrection. We're on the other side of the ascension. We have the Holy Spirit. So we see, oh, yeah, that's talking about Jesus because Jesus came and, yes, he was crucified, but he rose again, destroying the grave, destroying death, destroying Satan once and for all. So, yeah, Satan bruised his heel a little bit, but, man, did Jesus crush his head. But they didn't see that. They didn't know what he meant. They just knew one day... God's going to make it right. We see how it played out, but we have the Spirit to show us that. Adam and Eve didn't. The Old Testament Jews didn't. The first century Jews didn't. But then the story moves forward. And the, the thing we got to understand about the Bible is the Bible is not 66 different stories tied together, it is one continuous story about Jesus, about how the world was broken. And God, through Christ was going to fix everything, and one day he's going to come back and recreate it all, and it will be as exactly as he'd planned it to be. So that's what the whole story is, from Genesis to Revelation. We see that, and we're going to skip a lot of the promises, but we see how God says it's going to come through Abraham, going to come through David, going to come through Judah. We see all these things where God is just saying, this is how it's going to happen, this is how it's going to happen. But the second promise we come to is in, is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, and this is given to Abraham. And God tells Abraham, I will bless them who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God's moving the story forward. He's revealing a little more about the promise. One day, one's going to come, born a woman that's going to crush a serpent. And, said, and now we know it's going to come through the line of Abraham. The promise is given to Abraham that God is going to fix it by sending the one through the line of Israel. Now, through all of this, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That includes you. But Abraham didn't see that. God saw it, but Abraham wasn't thinking about you. Abraham wasn't thinking, of course, through my line, America and Virginia will be blessed by my family. There was no American in Virginia. He, and if there was, he didn't know about it. He didn't know about the people over here. All he knew about was the people in his area. So he wasn't thinking, oh, one day in 2020, the world's going to be a mess. But in Roanoke, Virginia, they're going to be blessed by one of my kids. He didn't see it. But you know who did see that? God saw that. God knew what, what, knew what he was doing. But Abraham didn't. When Moses wrote this, and Abraham heard this, they didn't even consider the immensity of what it meant, but God did. Then we look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Again, we're skipping a lot of promises here. But the Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. See, so how do you determine what's good and what's evil? You eat butter and honey on bread. It's very simple there. God tells us that. No, that's all it means. But here we have another promise. Satan's going to be defeated. The serpent's head's going to be crushed. It's going to come through the line of Abraham. And it's going to come through a virgin. Now, the Hebrew word virgin there simply means young girl. And I've heard, I've heard a lot of theologians say, well, it's just a young girl got pregnant. That's not a miracle. I mean, that's not a miracle at all because young women, married and not married, they get pregnant all the time. That's not a big deal. What, this, what makes this a miracle is it is a woman who had never known a man. And it's a, because God said, remember in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will be the one to crush the serpent's head. Not the seed of man. That's that's important there. So God says, now a, a virgin's going to conceive through the line of Abraham. This one is going to come and is going to crush the serpent's head. Satan's going to be defeated. His head's going to be crushed. Sin and death will be killed through Abraham and from a virgin. God will send the Messiah. God's going to fix everything through a son born of a virgin through the line of Abraham that accomplishes the promise given in Genesis chapter 3. Then we get to our text verse in, Genesis, in Isaiah chapter 9. Start at verse number 1. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as it was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, the land of Napathali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her, by the way, of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee, of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and hast not increased the joy, they joy before thee according to the joy of joy and harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou hast broken the yoke of this burden. And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with the confused noise, and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be for the burning and the fuel of fire, for unto us a child is given. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and the peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, there's a couple things in this verse, and mostly we focus on verses 6 and 7, but the first, you know, five verses are very important too. There's a couple of things we see in this verse. Of course, God says that the Messiah will come through the line of David. He'll have the throne of David. But he also says, he talks about Galilee and people walking in darkness. Now, Galilee is in the north of Israel. Galilee was right smack dab in the middle of the route that every invading army ever took to invade Israel. Every time an army invaded Israel, they would come through Galilee. They would raid the land. They would kill the men. They would take the women and children hostage. They would burn the buildings. They would destroy everything. Galilee was considered cursed by Israel because every time anybody invaded, they came straight through Galilee and destroyed everything. And so... God's saying that he's going to come through this place to fix everything. But that's why in Jesus' day, when people found out Jesus was from Galilee, they're like, well, he can't be the Messiah. Nothing good's coming from Galilee. Galilee's cursed. Galilee's there." Well, but God says it right there in Isaiah. Yeah, but we have the Holy Spirit. We have the whole scripture. They may not have seen that. Now, that's why when Jesus day, the, the Jews didn't think he could come from Galilee, but it says it right there, because they hadn't had the death, burial, and resurrection. They didn't have the Holy Spirit to show it to them. God just said that this broken, cursed place of Galilee is going to become ground zero for God destroying sin, conquering death, and setting up his kingdom forever, because God with us is coming from Galilee. The Messiah is coming from Galilee. God is establishing order. He is creating order, and he's creating his kingdom, and it's expanding from here forever. So in this place where people feel forgotten, people feel cursed, people are in darkness, people are abandoned, God says in that dark place they will know the light. They will be the beginning of me fixing everything. It's ground zero for hope to spread across the world. This, this tiny town, Galilee had about 200 people. This tiny town of about 200 people, God chooses this place to start his takeover, to begin the work of reconciliation. Then we're going to look at the last verse we're going to look at this morning. Now, this is a little bit different of a message. I don't have point one, point two, point three. I just have here's some verses. Here's the the point. So we're not going to have a point on the screen, but here's the last verse we're going to look at. Micah chapter five, verse two. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephraim, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now, Bethlehem... The Bible says Jesus, Jesus is going to come from Galilee, but he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a nowhere town. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's, very, it's even smaller than Galilee. It's nothing. It's a tiny town. It is forgotten, and God chooses there to start his plan. God chooses there to set the stage for making everything right. See, God starts small so we can see how big he is. Because if God started big, you know, if Jesus came from Manhattan, if it existed, then we wouldn't be surprised. Oh, of course. Oh, man, he came from a big city. So if God starts big, we think we're good. So God starts real small. He goes, I'm going to start in a tiny nowhere town in a forgotten, cursed place, and I'm going to make everything right through that so we can see how big he is. But again, we see that the first century Jews wouldn't have read that the way we do. They wouldn't have understood that until after the resurrection and after the Holy Spirit. These verses, they would have known them. They would have memorized them. They created a longing for God that prepared them for God to come in a way that he wasn't going to come. They didn't expect God to come as a servant, helping the poor, preaching about love and peace and all this stuff and fellowship and with sinners. They expected him to come as a conquering king. They thought Rome was the serpent whose head was going to be crushed. So they expected Jesus to come as this mighty warrior who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and destroy their enemies and then set up his dynasty, and the world would be blessed through him, but only because the Jews were ruling the world, and through that they would get to know God. That's why when Jesus came, as he came, they said, that's not him. It can't be him. The Bible doesn't talk about that. And we look at it like, well, how could it be so stupid? Yes, the Bible does. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the whole story. They, didn't, they waited, wanted the Messiah to destroy Rome. But God wasn't bringing an empire, He was bringing a kingdom. They were longing for the wrong thing. They should have been looking for God. To, they should have been longing for God to come and fix everything. What they should have been looking for, instead of looking for a mighty king, that's why when Jesus was on earth, they tried to make him a king so many times. Because that's what they expected. But instead of longing for this conquering king, they should have been longing for God to come and fix everything to bring us back to Genesis 2.25, where we're naked and unashamed. Just open and in perfect fellowship with God and each other. Now, we see that now, but we also have the wrong longing in our hearts, especially this time of year. You know, this time of year, everything, we all, we all have this hope and this dream and this idea that everything works out. You know, every Christmas movie, Santa, Santa is always fi- fine. Christmas is always saved. You know, the, the woman who comes from New York to find this tree farmer in Connecticut or something, they always get married, and, you know, the Hallmark movies, it always works out. Everything's perfect. And so that creates in us a longing that, man, Christmas, everything's going to work out. No, it's not. You know, it's it's not always good. Sometimes the tree farm shuts down. You know, sometimes Christmas is ruined. Sometimes it just all doesn't work out. And so we have this longing that everything's going to be fine. But our longing is misplaced. Our longing, our hope will not be found in anything of this world. You wake up Christmas morning and you get every present you wanted. You get all the, all the gifts you wanted. You get the Xbox One or the iPhone 12 or whatever it is you want. You get it all. You have a perfect meal. Everything's beautiful. You know, the family is great. Your mother-in-law doesn't show up, so you have a wonderful day. You, you have a perfect day it's still not going to fulfill you. You know why? Because December 26th is coming. Something's going to go wrong. Our longing should not be in anything of this world. Our longing, our hope is only found in Christ and a relationship with him. No presents you can buy will bring you hope and love Like a relationship with God will. Now, the longing's not bad. It is to, but longing isn't bad. It is to put us, it is put in us from God. That longing for something better was put in us when everything was broken and we lost our fellowship. It is not a longing for stuff, it's a longing to be restored. It's a longing and a hope. That one day we'll all be naked and unashamed again. And again, it has nothing to do with clothes. It's like, are you saying we're going to be naked in heaven? I don't care. It doesn't matter. That's not what it's about. It's about complete openness with your creator and with everyone else. That's what we lost at the fall. That's what God promised to restore through the Messiah And that's what we're longing for. One day when Jesus will come back, he'll call us up and we'll all be raptured into heaven. We're not going to get into the whole details in Revelation because then there's a seven-year tribulation. We come back, a thousand-year whatever. But at the very end, after the seven-year tribulation, after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, after the battle of Armageddon, at the very end, God starts everything new and we're where we should have been. Naked, naked unashamed before God and everybody. No secrets, no fear, no desire to hide, just perfect fellowship with God. That's what Christmas is about. We look back to the fulfilled promise of the Messiah and look forward to the promise of his coming again. We look forward to the day when God will return when he will make all things new, when he will fix what is broken for all of eternity. And we'll live in this beautiful, open fellowship with him and everyone else in the world. It is the hope of restoration for everybody. If you're a believer, that's what your hope is in. Your hope isn't in... And really, you know, you say, your your hope's not even really in heaven. And I say that, you know, it sounds blasphemous, but your hope's not even really in, in heaven. Your hope is in eternity with God and complete openness and fellowship with him. Your hope is in everything being fixed. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're looking forward to. If you're not a Christian, your hope is misplaced and it will never be fulfilled Because your hope's in the wrong thing. But that's another great promise that God's given us. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, the hope of salvation is for everyone who will believe in Christ. Who will believe that sin condemned us to hell that Jesus came to die on the cross and be buried and rise again to do for us what we could never do. And if we put our faith and trust in him and his death, burial, and resurrection, then we will be restored to God the Father and we have the hope of one day having that beautiful, open fellowship again. That's what our hope's in. That's what Advent is about. The hope that one day we'll all be naked and unashamed again. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace. Our church is growing and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged in or would like more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit us online at reachingroanoke.com. Thanks so much for listening and have a blessed day.